You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. 2 Kings 4, 1-7. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, your servants, my husband is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought out they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, "Bring me another vessel." And he said to her, "There is not another." Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. Thanks, Sam. Amen. All right, this time would you uh, pray with me, and then we're going to take a couple minutes uh, to reflect on this passage. Let's pray, though. Would you pray? Our Father, now as we come before you, your church here in Toronto knowing full and well that churches all around the world are reading your word today and your spirit is coming upon the churches your churches with power convicting of sin granting hope to the hopeless drawing more people closer to you we pray father that your spirit would be at work right now amongst us in our congregation as we hear the word preached as we reflect on this passage and we would leave here people who could say with certainty we have met with you And you have proved yourself to be a good God, showing forth your love. Speak to us by your Spirit, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. I want to take you on a a bit of an imaginative journey that a theologian took me on uh, some time ago, but has made a lasting impact in my life, okay? So follow along with me. Imagine we're in the second century. Imagine we're in the Mediterranean. Not bad. However, uh, the church, the Christian church, is under a season of profound persecution, systemic persecution by the Roman Empire. And most Christians are uh, put in situations where they have to either compromise their faith or pay greatly for their faith. In the midst of this persecution, there's one 80-year-old church leader who's been faithful. His name is Ignatius, and he's been arrested by the establishment and sentenced to death. And to make a public mockery of him, he's brought to Rome for the execution. And on the way to Rome, as he is soon to die, he writes letters to the churches who looked up to him as a pastor and as a bishop. And do you know what he consistently says through those letters? He says, remember the poor. Now let's imagine we're in the 4th century. We're still in the Mediterranean. The church is no longer being persecuted. In fact, it's had a tremendous impact on the empire And in some senses, it has an accepted status amongst the general society. However, the church is now dealing not with external persecution, but internal problems. Heresies and schisms are rising. 
The church is at war within itself. And to make matters worse, a great drought has come over the, the uh, Mediterranean region. There hasn't been water for some time. Crops are not growing. People are going hungry. Cities are filled with corrupt leaders who are serving their own interests, making sure their family has food, making sure their family has water, and injustice is flourishing. And in the midst of this setting, one leader comes and begins to be a voice of leadership amongst God's people. His name is Basil of Caesarea. He's famous for starting hospitals. And in the midst of this chaos, in the midst of this division, he preaches a series of sermons teaching his people how to follow God in the midst of a time like this, in the midst of a drought and in a divided church as God's people feel at war with one another. And you know the consistent theme that comes up in these sermons that he preaches? Remember the poor. Now let's go to the 13th century. We're in Italy. Because of the sack of Constantinople, Greek manuscripts have flooded into the western portion of the former Roman Empire. And with this Greek, these Greek manuscripts coming, the thoughts of Plato and Aristotle are plaguing people. People are trying to understand how do we make sense of society and where we're at in light of the great of thought from these Greek thinkers. The Muslims, the Jews, and the Christians are all trying to wrestle through what do we do with this tremendous teaching which has come from the Greek philosophers? How do we make sense of our religion in light of what these well-reasoned philosophers were arguing? And during this time, there's one thinker who rises above the rest. His name is Thomas Aquinas. He is a scholar and a monk, and he takes on the challenge of understanding especially Aristotle and how what Aristotle argues relates to the God we find revealed in the Scriptures. And he writes a magnificent work called the Summa, the Summa, Summa Theologica, about how Christians ought to think, especially in light of the greatest of human philosophy. And you know what he says in book two? He reminds the church of our calling, and it's to remember the poor. 16th century now, we're in the Swiss canton of Geneva. Europe is under utter chaos. The Reformation has brought religious changes, which has also left to, led to political unrest and even wars. And the city of Geneva is being profoundly reshaped because the persecution amongst the Protestants in France is causing a flood of refugees to leave France. All these major cities around France, all their refugees are leaving and they're coming into the city of Geneva. And in Geneva, there is one thinker who longed to be a scholar, to sit in the ivory tower, but he is put in a position where he must pastor these people, many of whom had death wishes over their head. He himself had a death wish over his head at seasons of his ministry. And he writes and preaches many sermons and writes a series of commentaries, especially commentaries on the book of Deuteronomy, Isaiah, Acts, and Galatians. And each one of these commentaries, you know what you can find him at length discussing? Remember the poor. This command to remember the poor. One more. We're in the 20th century now. We're in El Salvador. There's been a revolution, and the revolutionary government has come into power. However, the revolutionary government may have replaced a corrupt regime, but the revolutionaries have proved to be more corrupt and destructive than the regime that has come before them. And this particular revolutionary government has it out for the establishment Roman Catholic Church especially. And as a sign of their uh, utter uh, anger towards the Catholic Church, as a sign of their revolutionary spirit, they've begun finding 
Roman Catholic priests, especially leaders in Roman Catholicism, and systematically, one by one, assassinating them in town squares. In the midst of that crisis, there's one leader. His name is Oscar Romero. And he begins to teach people how to live during this incredibly dark and destructive period. And one day, as he is about to celebrate the Eucharist, he is going to be assassinated at the Lord's table. As, he, as, as he's celebrating the Eucharist, the revolutionaries will come in and assassinate him. But do you know what he preaches on in his last sermon to his people? How to live in this dark time? I'm sure you do. Remember the poor. Friends, no matter where we look in Christian history... The consistent witness of God's people has not been just to have an eye towards the poor because we bear some kind of collective guilt for having more things than many of the poor in the world. The Christian witness throughout the centuries in times of revolution, in times of chaos, in times of persecution, in times of pain, is that the integrity of our life with God is somehow wrapped up in our understanding and our life with the poor doesn't matter where you flip open the pages of church history. It doesn't matter where the church is gathering. Dig around long enough, and you will see the church living out this refrain to remember the poor. And the question I want to ask is, why is this the consistent witness of God's people? Why is this the witness of God's people throughout the ages? Well, this passage gives us a hint. Listen, this isn't the first time we've seen a prophet come along and sustain a widow. And in fact, one of the hard parts about preaching about Elijah and Elisha is there's a lot of similarities between this miracle and a miracle that happened earlier in the ministry of Elisha. So what I want to do this morning is maybe take a step back and look at the bigger picture of what, what is going on here and ask ourselves, why is it the consistent witness of the Christian church to always have an eye for the poor? I think this passage gives us some hints and at least tells us two things. The reason that the, the, the Christian church has always said the integrity of our life with God is wrapped up and dependent on the way in which we look at and care for the poor is because God, there's a certain desperation that God just can't help but see, and it's because God works in a special way when he sees this desperation. So this is the two points I want to look at as we think through this particular miraculous story. I want to I argue that there is a particular desperation that God can't help but see. And there's a particular way that God always tends to work when he sees that desperation. And I'm hoping as we look at this particular passage and we think through those two questions, we're going to understand a bit about why our church's life with God, the future of our church's life with God, is going to be wrapped up with our remembering the cry of the poor. So first, why is the consensus witness of God's people so deeply concerned with the poor, so wrapped up in thinking about the poor? And it's because there's a type of desperation that the Bible tells us God just can't help but see. Maybe to say it another way, he can't unsee a certain desperation. His eyes get fixated on a certain measure of desperation. Well, where does this passage show this? Well, there's no way about it. This widow is in an utterly desperate situation. She's lost her husband, which in this particular society would have been enough to make life absolutely impossible for her. But her husband has left her in such a place that she has had to take on debts, and the results of the debts are that she now must sell her two sons to those that she's indebted to so that she might be out from under this debt. And if that desperation wasn't great enough, we also learn that her husband was one of the faithful to God. You may remember this is a time, for those of you who are just hopping into the ser uh, sermon series, God's people have been divided as a nation between a northern and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom in a political move, has set up altars to sort of golden statues, 
turned away from the God who had rescued his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, turned away from the temple in Jerusalem, set up alternative places of worship and alternative religions. And yet, there is a small remnant that's faithful. And here is one of the men who's faithful. We, re- we learn that he was one of the, the seminarians, maybe, of the prophet Elijah. A student, a prophet, one who was faithful in a time when it cost greatly to be faithful, when almost assuredly your life would have been at risk in a couple of scenarios. And we find now that he is dead. What does this mean? The widow almost has no hope in society. Her debts are so great she's got to sell her son, and it's not like she has any social capital built up in reserves, any strings she can pull upon in the government because her husband is part of the repulsive crowd that has been faithful to the God of Israel. You see, Israel had a certain social safety net that was built into the law, but as God's people continued to reject the law and instructions that he had given to them, this woman finds herself without hope. She, it, we seem, doesn't have any family who want to come and bail her out. She has no redeemer. She is absolutely desperate, and it's this desperation that God cannot help but see. Uh, maybe I could illustrate this way. More often than I want to admit, I am one of those people that get distracted by clickbait on Twitter. You know, they say the unbelievable, remarkable pictures from, you know, world history. I'm the type of person that tells myself not to click on it, don't click on it, don't click on it, and then I click on it. And there's one picture that I've seen and I'll never unsee. I can see it in my mind's eye right now as clear as the first day I saw it. A beautiful family, four children, black and white photo from 1948. The kids are happy. They're sitting two by two on rows in the stairs. They have their arm around their siblings, two girls, two boys, smiling, happy faces. And there's a mother in the photo. And as the picture's being taken, she's turning her face and hiding her face with her hands. And it's because as you look at the rest of the photo, as your eyes move from the children to the mother, you see a sign next to her. Four children for sale. Inquire within. It's not a doctored photo. In fact, the children uh, who were sold were still alive very recently. You can learn more about their lives. It's a photo that you can't unsee when you see it. Listen, friends. God looks down from heaven and he sees the same stuff. And he can't unsee it. He can't help but see the people, people in their desperation. People that he made. People that he has purpose for. His mind stops wandering to the earth and it fixates on these people in this desperate situation. Think of how insane this is. What is this book called? What was this scroll called as it was read? It was the book of the kings. This is supposed to be a story about the kings of Israel during this time of crisis. As God's people fail to live out God's plans for the world. As the kings sort of enter into a downward spiral over and over and over again. And there is various kings, a king named Omri, for example, we learn virtually nothing about. But what do we learn about? What does God see necessary to record into the scriptures? What does he see fit that get locked into scriptures for us to be remembering for generations and generations and generations? What his eyes couldn't unsee. A desperate, desperate widow. This gets recorded. This is what God can't unsee. A nation in the midst of political crisis and chaos. Shouldn't we be talking about the ways in which the political establishment is is continuing this downward degradation? Shouldn't God do a miracle that's more public, that tries to win people back to himself? Friends, when God sees the poor, when he sees the destitute, he can't unsee it. 
His eye fixates on those who are in desperate situations. He can't unsee it, and he draws near. And you know why that is? And maybe this is one of the greatest mysteries of all of the Christian faith, and it's something I won't even hint, I won't even pretend like I fully understand. Part of why that is is because when God, at some point, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are trying to make a, they're talking about their plan, I don't know how this all works out in the mind of God, about how they're going to make themselves known to these creatures made in their image. And they kick around ideas. I don't mean this to be sacrilege or to, to, to mockingly talk about the Godhead, but there's no desire as they think about how to make their, themselves known, their character known to their creatures. They don't think about being born in a palace, celebrating a platinum jubilee. They don't think about a mighty warrior or king. When they think about how in the world are we going to reveal ourselves to our creation, which we have made, but is substantially different than us, the Father says to the Son, you're going to go. And you know how you're going to make us known? A poor, unknown worker from a backwoods town is going to experience injustice. Friends, it's not just that God sees the poor and the desperate and the destitute. It's that in a mysterious way, when he sees them, he identifies with them. He says, you can't understand me until you understand this. And that's why he sends his son to take on flesh, Jesus of Nazareth, to be born in a stable. To to experience not having a roof over his head. Friends, this is the mystery of our God, and I don't even begin to understand it. His glory is greater than any king that will ever exist on the earth. He has more resources at his fingertips than you and I can comprehend or imagine. And yet, there's something about who he is. He says, the way that I'll identify myself is through this average man walking around the Middle East, crucified on trumped-up charges. Friends, this is our God, a man who knows sorrows, He knows what it feels like to be destitute. He knows what it feels like to be abandoned. He knows what it feels like to not know where he's going to get his next meal, where to lay his head. If you want to know our God, it's not just that he sees the poor and he can't unsee it, but he also identifies with us. Listen closely, church. It shouldn't surprise any of us that on the last day, as we think about the judgment the Lord might pass upon our lives, we don't have record of him asking us how many people we led to know Jesus Christ, how many times we shared the gospel. We don't, we don't read a lot about that. We don't read a lot about how much scripture we had memorized, how faithful was our church attendance on the last day, at the final of assessment of our lives. Our Lord will not ask me what various ministry titles I have had or what ministries I've participated in starting. He won't ask how high your influence was on the sphere of people he put you in. What will he ask you? He will say, what did you do for the least of these? Remember the poor. In God's mysterious plan, with his power and all his might, he hasn't equally distributed possessions. There is measures of destitute and desperation that exist on his earth that in his mysterious plan, he's allowed. And in fact, he's used to advance forth his plan. He knows, he sees, he hears, he identifies with. If you're even someone like a business owner 
who find yourself being faithful but now is going bankrupt, after years of generosity, refusing unethical practices, no money left, the Lord sees, and in a mysterious way he identifies with. Maybe the Christian who's used their very life, their breath, to serve the church all the days of her life, still receives these difficult diagnoses and finds themselves in utter desperation. The Lord sees. And in a mysterious way, the Lord identifies with the humble servant of our Lord Jesus Christ who finds themselves upended by an accident, life transformed, utterly different, desperate. The Lord sees. And it's not just that he sees, he identifies with. This is why it's been the consistent witness of God's people to remember the poor. Because God sees the poor and he can't unsee them, and in a mysterious way, he even identifies with them. And that's why this widow gets, such a, gets a full seven-verse uh, summary. This unnamed widow, we get her story recorded in the book of the kings as the nation falls apart, moves into their exilic punishment. But it's not just that God sees the poor and identifies with the poor. He also does something when he sees people in these desperate situations, whether that be a, a phys- you know, financial desperation or any kind of emotional desperation that someone may find themselves in. He does something when he sees this desperation. What does he do? Let's look again at this passage. I'll try to take you through just some of what happens. What does Elijah ask this widow? He says, what do you have in your house? Strange question. I thought a lot about it. I don't know why he asked it. If someone says that they're on the verge of starving to death and they're about ready to lose their kids, I guess you ask them what resources they have available. And how does the woman respond? She says, listen, I don't, I, I don't got anything. I've got a very small jar of olive oil, something, something like, well, I mean, oil's worth something in our world as well, but so, something that was a form of, had some monetary value, but just a small jar. And what does Elijah tell her to do? He said, okay, with what you've got, with what little you have, I want you to go to your neighbors and you collect every container you can find, Okay. She goes to her neighbors and collects every container she finds. What is Elijah telling her to do? He's telling her to identify her helplessness. And he's telling her to go find markers of her helplessness, empty jars. Surround her life with these empty jars. Looking at the one small jar, the small container she has. What is God doing? He's about to use the very symbol of her weakness, the symbol of her desperation. All I've got to my name is this jar. That's going to be the means in which she sees her deliverance. That's going to be the source and the sign of her salvation. In her weakness, in her lack, that's the very thing our Lord is going to use to show forth his power and to bring salvation to this woman. This is how our God works, is it not? Tell me what wound you don't have that hasn't been a source of tremendous healing for others as you share about it in your life. Tell me what weakness the Lord hasn't given you which hasn't been an avenue in which our Lord shows forth his strength. Is this not how our Lord always acts? What does she do next? She's given these strange instructions. Is this supposed to be a miracle that's a big, you know, Harry Potter magical skills show-off session so that everyone will see and turn from their sins? No, what does she have to do? Go into her house, shut the doors with her son. Then she's supposed to take that small jar of oil she has, And to each one of these empty jars, turn it to the side and pour and pour and pour. Utterly irrational, it seems, almost insane. But she diligently does it. We see it in verse 5. 
And it's interesting. This is how the miracle takes place. What role does Elisha play in the miracle? It's behind closed doors. He just tells her what to do. She hears Elijah as though he is speaking God's word, and she believes in faith. She obeys him, and the miracle begins to take place. The little jar fills, and greater jars fill over and over and over again. There's no magical powers of the prophet. Small act of obedience, trusting the words of the prophet, bring about this miraculous deliverance for the woman. Listen, the reason the Christian community throughout whatever era you'll find yourself in has always bore witness to the integrity of their life with God by their integrity of the life with the desperate is because God not only sees the poor, He not only identifies with them in a mysterious way, but He refuses to let their situation be this way forever. When He sees it, He says, this will not always be. I will come. I will change those desperate situations. I will heal all diseases. I will wipe away every tear from their eye. I will undo the effects of death. I will fix the unequal distribution of resources. I will, because this is my world and this is how I am. This is exactly what he gives us a very small preview of through this widow. He takes what she has, what little she has, and with her own dignity, with the door shut, without any neighbors really understanding what happens, she comes out with a full market market, uh, ready to go to the market, filled with olive oil, to repay not only her debts and to sustain herself for her future. Is this not what we see the God of the Bible doing time and time again? Does he not choose Moses, timid, to speak? Does he not tell Moses, I want you to use that little staff in your hand. That's going to be a sign of my power. You're going to lead my people, out of the greatest superpower of the day? Does he not take these liberated slaves and back them up to a body of water so that they're desperate, so they have nothing left to do other than depend on him? And as they cry out to him, does he not part the waters so they can walk on dry land? Is this not what our Lord is constantly doing, taking us and exposing our desperation, exposing our weakness, exposing our utter poverty, that he might prove himself to be the one to be rich in salvation. Is not our Lord Jesus the type of Savior that was born to a young virgin? Born in weakness. Did He not die in weakness on a cross? Did His miracles not include handing out a couple loaves of bread and fish and watching these signs of weakness become means by which salvation is delivered? You see, God not only sees the poor, and identifies with them. He wants us to see those in desperate situations, not just poverty, but all desperate situations, in a mysterious way understand that we identify with them. That standing before a holy God who made us, who has blown air into our lungs, who's given us life, who's filled us with the blood that beats through our hearts, we stand desperate and destitute. We're clueless. We don't know up from down. We want to please our Lord at some points of our life, and we don't even know how to do it correctly. Other times of our life, we find the fact that we have a creator a tremendous problem and burden. And when we take an account of our entire life, even in our most holy of moments, we realize we are in a desperate state. We have no right to life with God. We have no right to receive life unending. Death is a fair and just punishment, but we know we deserve even more than death. 
who deserve a punishment that goes on beyond this life. Ours is a desperate spot. Ours is a, a, a position of desperation. And how does our Lord act? The same way he does in this miracle. He provides the means of salvation through our weakness, through our flesh. He sends his son to take on human flesh just like us. He takes his son on to be that, that small little jar of oil that might be poured out, that more and more might experience the blessings of God and be filled and, 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 and in their desperation find wholeness with our Lord. You see, friends, the poor in our society, and by that, again, I'm, I'm using it broadly, not narrowly, the poor are for us a physical sign of a spiritual reality that we all bear, that we all carry, that the church has always carried this desperate and destitute position. And we don't help the poor to be condescending to them or to be paternalistic as though we somehow are superior to these people. When we see them, we say we are them. We just don't even know it. Our difference isn't great. It's minute. So whether that's redistributing resources so that bellies might be fed, doing our best to intervene so that suffering might be alleviated. The cry of the church throughout all of the centuries is that the heart, where you find these people in their desperate spots, there you can know God's eyes are locked down from heaven. He sees and he can't unsee because he identifies with these people. And where you find these people, God's people have always known, there you're going to see God act in power. This widow lacks a redeemer to come and rescue her from this situation. Our Lord himself becomes that redeemer, miraculously gives her this oil that her sons might be saved. Friends, someone much greater than Elijah has come, our Lord Jesus Christ. He's God's intervention into this world that we might be rescued, that we might be saved. And the reason the consistent witness of the church throughout all the ages has been to remember the poor in times of crisis and in times of plenty is because it's in seeing the poor we understand God's heart better than any other, any other way we, we can find in the scriptures. So what am I trying to say? Let me wrap this up. Everyone's paying attention quite well. What am I trying to say? Ours is a, ours is a time of crisis. I won't, I won't exaggerate it. I think we're in a tough spot. Christianity is losing some major credibility in the Western world, and I think our city's on the, the tip of the spear of some of these things. There's a good chance some of you, if not you, your children might be put in situations where they either have to compromise their faith or suffer greatly for their faith. There's a good chance some in this room will compromise in ways they will deeply, deeply regret. There's a good chance some will suffer. And in the midst of this time, it's tempting to say, what is the call of the church? What should we be doing? What, where should our eye be? Probably towards the halls of power, right? Figuring out how to, how to politic, how to lobby to protect ourselves. And we need to get some of the best and brightest thinkers into political science programs and in changing public policy. We've got to get a PR firm together. We've got to figure out how to run a better campaign to represent what it means to be the church. And there's some merits to all this stuff, and it's stuff we're going to have to think about. It's stuff we're going to have to do. We're going to have to learn to disciple our kids as to how to navigate this. Friends, God's people are in a much more desperate situation than us. And don't forget where God's eyes were. They were on this poor and desperate widow. Don't forget the poor. In seeing them, you remember more about how God has made you, how you failed to be the person God wants you to be. And in seeing them, you'll be reminded of God's heart. You're reminded exactly who our God is. Because in a mysterious way, he identifies with the poor, and he's made it his life to lift up the poor. That all 
all his children might come to him, that all his children might find full forgiveness, and one day the effects of sin might be completely done in a world where everyone will live and flourish. This is what he's working towards. This is our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we're a young church, quite distracted church, quite resource-heavy. There's a lot of things calling for our attention, and there's a lot of things telling us to fear. Would you make us a church that remembers the desperate, the widows, the orphans? Make us a church that remembers the poor. Make us a church that ministers to the poor in such a way that we're not paternalistic or condescending, but in loving and serving those in desperation. We find ourselves more deeply bound up with and caught up with the work you are doing in this world through Jesus Christ. We understand our own spiritual poverty for you and the forgiveness offered in Christ, the riches offered in Christ, not just that we're forgiven and neutral, but we stand before you as those who have your son's arm around, welcomed as though we're part of the family. Father, let us never grow arrogant about our riches. Always remind us of our desperation provided, fulfilled for, paid for by Christ, and make us into a people who spread this message to many others. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at christchurchtoronto.ca or email us at info at christchurchtoronto.ca.